National Archives podcast series. During much of Elizabeth I's reign, the piecemeal voyaging of earlier 16th century periods continued. Extended expeditions outside of Europe were still rare. Sir John Hawkins' slaving voyages to Guinea and the Caribbean in the 1560s helped to establish the viability of a triangular trading network between England, West Africa and the Americas. This was firmly based on the trade in slaves with Spanish colonists in the Caribbean. Hawkins received considerable backing from Elizabeth I's leading courtiers and provided intelligence on how Spain had developed her Caribbean outposts in earlier periods. It was his voyages that first demonstrated how African slaves could replenish the indigenous population of the Caribbean, which was already becoming decimated by the harshness of Spanish rule. Hawkins also brought tobacco and sweet potato back to England, as well as greater possibilities for the development of English possessions in the region. We should give some background here into why the hostility of England and Spain really fuelled English exploration during Elizabeth I's reign. Philip II, King of Spain, inherited a great deal of land in northern Europe when his father Charles V died, and he brought an absolute Spanish type of rule to lands like the Netherlands, Flanders and Burgundy. In the 1560s, unrest and rebellion in this region of northern Europe threatened English traditional markets for cloth and wool. In 1562, England was accused of supporting Protestant unrest in the Netherlands, and English privateers took letters of marque from Protestant nobles to attack Spanish shipping in the Channel. The Channel ports, under Spanish control, were closed to the English and their cloth in 1563. By 1566, the Calvinist rebellion in the Netherlands brought a massive Spanish army from Milan up through Europe and onto the Channel coast obviously threatening England. England tried to protect markets during the 1570s, but by 1580, Queen Elizabeth's position was forced to change. In 1580, Spain annexed Portugal, giving Philip II dominance of the Channel and all the Atlantic routes. Spain was already drawn into the Huguenot Catholic War of the Three Henrys in France, and Protestant England was the chief enemy of this Catholic alliance. The assassination of William the Silent, Prince of Orange, in 1584, also spread war into the Netherlands, and this threatened to turn the whole of Northern Europe against England. The final act was Elizabeth's Treaty of Nonsuch in August 1585, which allied England to the Protestant faction and was seen as a declaration of war by the Spanish. But England could not afford a land war. The only really really viable outlet was an increase in state-sponsored piracy and privateering. Spanish trade routes from the Caribbean could be easily disrupted, and Spanish settlements were also isolated and vulnerable. The French Huguenot admiral, Gaspard de Coligny, had proposed to capture the Spanish silver fleet in 1558, and the English developed his plans into a more wide-ranging strategy. Promotion of a privateering fleet as an instrument of war laid the foundation of England's use of sea power as the basis for foreign policy. And a formal sea war after 1585 was the final act in a deteriorating relationship between England and Spain. If we go back slightly, we can see how this had developed. The Spanish were mindful of the vulnerability of their valuable New World trade. In 1565, for example, they had destroyed French forts in Florida, which they thought were encroaching on the silver trade routes back to Europe. A young Francis Drake had been part of Sir John Hawkins's voyage in 1567-8, when Caribbean um, voyaging and piracy had plundered perhaps as much as £25,000 from the Spanish, 
almost as much as an annual taxation in England. Drake used his own West Indian voyages in 1569 to 73 and his circumnavigation of the world in 1577 to 80 to increase his fortune through piracy. And the consequence of these and other voyages was that English sailors learned to navigate very well in American waters. They proved to the rest of England, to Devonshire men especially, that privateering ventures could be very profitable indeed, and it proved to Queen Elizabeth that the Crown could use this greed to further policy without risking very much at all. The success of privateers allowed Elizabeth's chief minister, Sir Francis Walsingham, to formalise the war at sea. He managed to recruit various pilots and navigators from the Spanish, the chief of which was a Portuguese man called Simão Fernandes, who the English called Simon Fernandes, who had very detailed knowledge of the Spanish routes into America. In June 1578, it was the Devonshire privateer Sir Humphrey Gilbert who petitioned for the right to attack Spanish ships and to establish a permanent colony on Newfoundland. Gilbert's license allowed him to search for any lands not held by Christians, and then gave him judicial powers and the right to grant parcels of land to any colonists he could persuade to join the voyage. But Gilbert's first voyage was a disaster, with most ships failing to leave home waters in 1579. By 1583 he was ready to try again, with backers and colonists who were attracted by a superior New World map that he touted around London and the court. Gilbert also had a very successful marketing plan and campaign for this voyage. He publicised the amazing description of America by a man called Davy Ingram, a sailor who was supposedly stranded by Sir John Hawkins in 1568 and who managed to walk around the coast from Mexico to Newfoundland, where he was picked up by French fishermen and returned to his astounded family in Essex. Ingram's account, which is held at the National Archives, is full of promises of gold, gems, vast amounts of land, uh, available, amazing animals. All of this was used to persuade Londoners and people from around London to join the prospective colony, and about 260 people left Plymouth in June 1583. Unfortunately, Gilbert's captains only decided to head for Newfoundland after a heated debate once they were at sea. Not a very good start. Bad weather and the usual interest in privateering dispersed the fleet, but Gilbert eventually reached Newfoundland on the 5th of August 1583. He claimed the island for Elizabeth I, despite ships, um, 36 ships from various European countries already at anchor at St John's Harbour. He threw a big party and even invited the Spanish. Even in August, Newfoundland depressed the colonists. Gilbert was persuaded to head south to a more temperate landfall. Unfortunately, his flagship, the Delight, struck on rocks soon after, losing all the provisions and Gilbert's notes, charts and plans. The fleet returned back to London. Stung by criticism of his leadership, Gilbert was last seen in a storm in the Azores on the overloaded squirrel, uh, reading a book on the quarterdeck as the waves washed round his ankles. This was the first death in the American adventuring. His patent was inherited by his half-brother, Walter Raleigh who was already dazzling the court at this time. Raleigh set up headquarters at his London house called Durham House and sought the latest navigation techniques and collected narrative accounts of voyages of exploration from around Europe. Instead of the grand plans of earlier attempts, he had a fairly simple and straightforward approach to America. Raleigh aimed to send a small flotilla to bring Native Americans back to London so he could learn their languages and fully understand their land and customs only then would an expedition be launched. 
When he received Newletter's patent in March 1584, Raleigh already had a voyage very well prepared under command of his friends and servants, Arthur Barlow and Philip Amadas. With Simon Fernandez as the main pilot, Barlow and Amadas enjoyed a five-month voyage through the West Indies to the outer banks of Carolina and home again. On the 13th of July 1584, Fernandez located an inlet between Roanoke and Hatterask Islands, which became known as Port Ferdinando, and Barlow's account of this voyage paints a very vivid picture of the country they had encountered. Contact was also made very quickly with Wingina, the chief of a thriving community on Roanoke Island. The English were treated very well, and after five weeks they managed to negotiate a return home with two men, Manteo and Wanchis, from the islands on the banks. By the close of 1584, Raleigh's friend, the mathematician Thomas Harriot, had deciphered the Algonquian language that Wanchis and Manteo spoke, and because of this he managed to learn a great deal about life on Roanoke Island. Raleigh needed to get the Crown interested in permanent colonies if he was to make his fortune through the terms of his patent. The privateers knew that the Spanish silver ships picked up the trade winds around 35 to 36 degrees north on their journey back from Cuba to Spain. A base here in this temperate latitude was also protected from the sea by the banks and was far enough away from Florida to be safe from Spanish patrols. But Queen Elizabeth would not supply state cash, but Raleigh's intention to plunder Spanish silver ships and set up a colony of about 300 people did attract private backing around the court. What Elizabeth did give was a ship called the Tiger and a vast amount of gunpowder. And Raleigh sold shares in the expected plunder from privateering to finance another six vessels and equipment. Sir Richard Grenville was to lead the fleet while Ralph Lane would create the Roanoke colony based on information from Thomas Harriet. The expedition left Plymouth at the start of April 1585 and took about a month to cross to Dominica. Grenville set up a privateering base on Puerto Rico, but did not reach Roanoke until the 26th of June. Some ships had been scattered, and other Englishmen were already on Croatoan Island. The Tiger struck on the shoals and almost all the food was lost to the sea. By the 6th of July, Grenville had contacted Chief Wingina and had begun to explore the inlets and the villages of Pamlico Sound under Captains John Arundel and John White. And it was in July that White made his famous paintings of the people and society he found, which was the subject of a recent British Museum exhibition. So while White and Arundel were exploring, negotiations were underway to build an English fort on Roanoke Island. Captain Philip Amadus was exploring Albemarle Sound during August 1585. And once the site for the colony was established, we see the first letters back from America to England and John Arundel was sent back to bring more food and equipment during this month. The letters that have survived include lots of evidence of hostility between Grenville and Lane, but above all you get a sense of the benefits and wonders that America offered, uh, which were praised in a way to attract further colonists and backing. By September, Grenville had decided to return to England, while Lane was ordered or volunteered to hold out over the winter to await new supplies and more colonists in the spring of 1586. Grenville's return also coincided with the capture of a massive prize filled with spices, silver gems and ivory, perfect timing to advertise the potential profits of new world adventuring. And here at the National Archives we've got one of the earliest maps drawn from soundings and observations of the land around Roanoke and Virginia and Carolina banks. 
We know very little of how Ralph Lane survived the winter. We know his captains and sailors explored the sounds, but food became very short. He'd probably been asked by Raleigh to find the deep water port that Roanoke Island did not have. And by the spring of 1586, we think his men had probably scouted as far as Chesapeake Bay. Lane's aggressive search for food turned Chief Wingina and his allied tribes against the English. Lane learned of a plan to destroy the fort, but in June 1586 he attacked first, killing Wingina and scattering his supporters. The English survived the winter, but had damaged relations with their hosts. This meant that the colony had to be moved if it was to survive. This action also coincided with another raid by Francis Drake in the West Indies. In September 1585, he launched a very successful raid on Spanish outposts. But before he set off, he'd probably met with Grenville to discuss how best to benefit the Roanoke colony. Attacks on towns and forts like Santo Domingo raised hostages and freed slaves, and the burning of St. Augustine in Florida helped to keep the Spanish away from Roanoke. On the 10th of June 1586, Drake's fleet appeared off the banks. The next day he met Lane and offered men and supplies to enable the English colony to move further north. Unfortunately, a massive hurricane on the 13th of June scattered Drake's fleet. In what was now a hostile location, Lane decided to abandon the colony and fort on Roanoke altogether. Men and equipment were left behind in the rush to embark the colony. And to make room for the English, Drake also seems to have abandoned the African slaves and others taken as Caribbean forts were liberated. Was this the first lost colony? Only a few days after the colony had been evacuated, a supply ship from Raleigh found the settlement and coastline deserted. And by July, Grenville himself reappeared and learned what had happened. He left a minimal force under one master coffin, which was soon overrun in August. Roanoke Fort was burned and the English expeditions had to start all over again. So back in London, in January 1587, John White was made governor of the new city of Raleigh in Virginia, which was to be founded on Chesapeake Bay. 150 volunteers were promised 500 acres of land each, and the fleet left Plymouth on the 8th of May, but White and the pilot Fernandez again clashed, the Portuguese even being accused of delaying the voyage in the search for prizes. The colonists became desperate after a passage of 76 days, reaching the banks only on the 27th of July. Roanoke was investigated as a stopping-off point, but Fernandez refused to take the colonists any further north, and White was forced to rebuild on the old site on Roanoke Island. White had returned with Manteo, the ally taken in 1585, whom he hoped to install as an ally on Croatoan Island. White learned that one chief, the other American brought to London in 1584, had destroyed Coffin's garrison and was leading resistance to the English. Although the birth of Virginia Dare, White's granddaughter on the 18th of August 1587, was seen as a good sign for the future of the colony, that future really was still in the balance. White asked for volunteers to return with Fernandez to set up a resupply route. White himself agreed to go back to England to explain things to Raleigh, and he left instructions and certainly expected the colony to move towards Chesapeake Bay while he was absent. Unfortunately, 1588 became a very bad year for the American colonies. Drake's West Indian raid and his attack on Cadiz in April 1587 prompted Spain into action to crush the English threat by sea, and this was the Spanish Armada. Spain intended to use her navy to ferry invading troops from the Netherlands to England and this threat brought all English vessels back to defend home waters under a stay of shipping order in October 1587. 
Raleigh had managed to use his influence with the Queen to send two tiny ships out towards Virginia, one of which contained John White, who was desperate for news of his family and the other colonists. Unfortunately, the captain of these two ships could not resist privateering, and in a big fight with a Spanish privateer, both vessels were forced home in May after sustaining damage. The Armada campaign then took the attention of everyone who had previously been involved in American voyaging. But Raleigh didn't forget about the colony. He set up a comprehensive new syndicate as soon as he returned to London in March 1589. The American adventure was not abandoned. Although Raleigh was preparing a major venture, there was no English voyage to Virginia in 1589. The Spanish had also learned that the colony had relocated to Chesapeake Bay, and an expedition specifically sent to destroy the English found nothing in that area, but by accident did locate the deserted Roanoke settlement. The English colony seems to have vanished. And it wasn't until March 1590 that Elizabeth allowed John White to join a privateering expedition that was instructed to call at Virginia to try and locate the colony. This expedition, under Abraham Cock, was successful in prize-taking, but did not reach the banks until the start of August 1590. Hurricanes prevented landing for two weeks. Smoke seen from ships on the islands turned out to come from natural fires, and several men were drowned trying to land in the high seas. The search parties played English tunes and sang songs in an attempt to attract attention, but no people appeared. On the 18th of August, carvings were found that suggested a quick departure for Croatoan the home of White's ally Manteo, not towards Chesapeake Bay as had been agreed three years earlier. Then cannon, the fort's forge, and personal items were found buried in the sand, signs of a rapid but not violent departure. The weather closed in again and poor weather threatened further searches. Cox's ships sheltered on Hatterask Island, but snapped cables and the loss of smaller boats prevented exploration of rivers and inlets that might have revealed more about the colonists. All ships eventually were forced back to the Azores for resupply, and no return voyage was made. The lost colony remained lost. White returned to London by the 24th of October, a broken man. Most of the other captains headed straight for the Admiralty Court to safeguard their prize shares, showing you that their priority, of all but a handful of those involved in the Virginia Ventures, was personal profit and gain. The settlement of Virginia seems to have reached a tragic end. But Raleigh had one final gamble. By 1592, the original adventurers, Lane, White, Grenville, were no longer involved or were dead. Raleigh was in temporary disgrace with the Queen after an affair with Elizabeth Throckmorton, her lady-in-waiting, and was also severely in debt after the expensive failures of his earlier colonising voyages. But in 1594, Ananias Dare, John White's son-in-law, was declared legally dead, having been missing for seven years. Now Raleigh's authority in Virginia was based on his 1584 patent that required him to start a permanent colony within seven years, and not unnaturally this renewed his interest in the colonising ventures. The fate of the original colonists was again discussed around London, and Raleigh used this to organise an expedition um, which was originally headed for Guyana, but failed completely to call it Roanoke Island as intended. In 1599 onwards, Raleigh again sent several annual expeditions to search the islands around Roanoke for the colony. Few made any progress until 1602, when Samuel Mace and Bartholomew Gilbert were specifically charged to find the 1587 colonists. Unfortunately, 
Mace returned to find Queen Elizabeth dead, Raleigh in prison, and plague empty in London of people who might have heard his report. The report was that the colonists were still alive. His verbal report was not recorded, but its contents soon appeared in quayside gossip, in taverns, and in popular writing. In 1604, George Weymouth's treatise on America, The Jewel of the Arts, urged King James to send building materials to Virginia to aid the colonists. Unfortunately, King James refused to contemplate aiding any voyage to what he called a vile and savage land. Raleigh was also imprisoned awaiting trial for treason, yet this process was the final link in the chain that brought about Jamestown's settlement. Perhaps a result of the legal process is trial judge, Chief Justice John Popham, developed the idea of using Virginia as a dumping ground for all of England's criminals and vagrants. As strange as it seems, this was the starting point of the Jamestown expedition. Not until spring 1606 was Popham ready to send his expedition, and again this had no royal interest or help. It was firmly rooted in the spirit of earlier voyages. Most of the captains were Raleigh's men, Previous maps and charts were used, and even the equipment was Elizabethan army surplus, it seems. The newly formed Virginia Company hearkened back to previous adventures, merging colonisation initiatives with the search for profit. This year also saw the publication of Richard Hakluyt's Principal Navigations, a collection and compendium of all previous navigation voyages and narratives, and it was a real impetus, a real boon to the revival of interest in Virginia. 104 colonists soon volunteered. Half were gentlemen and half were labourers, but there were no women and no farmers. The three ships, the Susan Constant, Godspeed and Discovery, were hired to convey them across the Atlantic. One-armed Christopher Newport, a veteran commander and part of White's 1590 crew, was given sole command until arrival at Virginia. Only then would a sealed packet be opened to reveal the company's appointments as governor and councillors. Risks of privateering were also avoided. The expedition left in December 1606, heading straight for Chesapeake Bay, which had been the destination or the aim of English voyages since 1585, and they arrived at the end of April 1607. The priority was a fortified camp, and no search for the earlier colonists could be made until this was established. The land was described as welcoming and fertile when they arrived in the spring of 1607, which is very true to descriptions by Lane and Harriet earlier. But it was found that the tribes were not as friendly as on the islands of the Banks, and the English were attacked almost straight away. Newport set up the council with Edward Wingfield as governor and John Smith as an energetic councillor. After exploration of the bay, the English settlement was sighted on a low island in the James River. Unfortunately, it was marshy, open to attack, and without spring water, not the ideal place. Exploration of the river found a few surprises. Iron implements of European origin and a fair-haired, light-skinned child spotted in one of the villages. Was this evidence of earlier colonists? By the 21st of June, Newport considered his job done and prepared to leave, promising to return in 20 weeks. The English settlement of America was about to begin in earnest. Just as Christopher Newport left the colonists, so must we. This was only the start of a struggle to establish Jamestown on the land of the Emperor Powhatan, and it was only successful through the skill and bravery of men and women like John Smith and Powhatan's daughter Pocahontas. The interweaving stories of John Smith, George Percy, the lost colonists, Powhatan, Pocahontas and John Rolfe have been told many times already, 
and you can download and read documents of the Jamestown settlement on our Documents Online website. The final tragedy for the English was that John White's lost colonists do seem to have made it to Chesapeake Bay, to the village of Skikowak, visited by White's men in the winter of 1585-6. John Smith learned from Powhatan himself that they had survived for over 20 years in friendly proximity to the Chesapeake tribe, the only one in the region to have resisted Powhatan's rule. A prophecy among Powhatan's people proclaimed that the first two attempts to settle the area by men from overseas would fail. That was the Spanish in the 1570s and Raleigh's earlier colonies on Roanoke, only for a third to end Powhatan's empire and take the land for themselves. When Newport's 1607 fleet appeared in the bay in April 1607, Powhatan ordered the massacre of the 1585 colonists and attacked Newport settlers as they landed in an attempt to wipe out this prophesied invasion that was destined to destroy his empire. Some few even survived this slaughter, and that they did testifies to the toughness of the type of people who volunteered for these voyages to put the English into America. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved. <laughs>